If you have your Bibles or your scripture journal, I hope that you do. I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 14. It will not be behind me on the screen in my translation as well, so you will need your Bible with you or your scripture journal or uh, your Bible on your phone. If you need to, just please do not open Instagram and Facebook and Twitter while I'm preaching, all right? Um, there is good news. I'm, I, I was thinking about you, Randy, uh, because uh, Randy doesn't like the settings of the AC because it gets too cold in here. Today, you should have no problem with that at all. <laughs> I bring good news of great joy, brother. You will be sweating in 10 minutes. Luke and 14, we're going to finish the chapter today in verses 25 through 35, and then we will be in chapter 15 for the rest of the month until July when we will take a break from Luke for our annual summer in the Psalms. But for uh, today, let's read uh, Luke 14, starting in verse 25 down to 35. The Holy Spirit says, Now great crowds accompanied him, Jesus, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate? whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Verse 34, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Amen. This is God's word. May God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. How would you define a life well lived? What would a life well lived look like? If you were to write down the sorts of things that would fill the life of someone you think could look back at the end of it all and say, I lived a great life. What sort of things would you write down on that list? Or let's phrase it differently. I was listening to Alistair Begg preach this text and he asked, what are you doing with the dash between the dates? He meant by this, when your life ends and they go to chisel your gravestone, they will put a single dash between the date you were born and the date that you Died. Our lives will be reduced down to a dash. So what are you doing with the life that is represented with a dash between the dates? What would it look like to live a life to which we could say that our dash wasn't wasted? I imagine that a life well lived, according to most Americans, would sound pretty similar, don't you think? If they're making this list, if most people were to write down an ideal life, on the front end, that they could look back on the end and say, this wasn't a wasted life, I think their list would probably all look pretty similar, right? A job I enjoy, 
plenty of money to where I don't have to worry, ability to see the world, a spouse or mate that makes me happy, X amount of kids, a nice car, a nice house, a nice retirement to live out my remaining days in comfort and relaxation. Don't you think most people would say those kinds of things? Basically what amounts to the American dream, right? And if they got that life, would you say it was well-lived and not wasted? In reflecting on this, I couldn't stop thinking about a message that John Piper delivered about 20 years ago. And I've shared it with you before, but I just, I had to do it again, all right? Piper stood before about 40,000 college students. And he preached a sermon, but it wasn't the sermon, like the context, the main points of the sermon that stuck with the hearers, but an illustration he gave, uh, which would be the catalyst for one of his most popular books. Well, in this illustration, Piper offered two stories of comparison. And the first was telling about two of his church members who had been killed three weeks prior in Cameroon. And their names were Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards. Ruby was over 80 years old. She was single all her life and she was a nurse. And she poured her life out for one thing, to make Jesus known among the sick and the poor in the hardest and most unreached places. Laura was a medical doctor in the Twin Cities And she was pushing 80 years old, and in her retirement, she decided to spend it by partnering with Ruby and going from village to village in Cameroon. Well, as they were driving one day in Cameroon, the brakes gave way, and over the cliff they went. And they were dead instantaneously. And he told the college students listening to that, that he had told his church about Laura and Ruby's death, and he asked them, is this a tragedy? He said two women in their 80s almost, a whole life devoted to one idea, Jesus Christ magnified among the poor and the sick in the hardest places. And 20 years after most of their American counterparts had begun to throw their lives away on trivialities in Florida and New Mexico, they fly into eternity with a death in a moment. And he said, is this a tragedy? He said, it is not a tragedy I'll read to you what a tragedy is. So he pulls out a piece of paper, and it's a page from Reader's Digest. And he says, this is a tragedy. He said, the title, whose kid is that? He said, the title of the article, start now, just for guests, that's mine, all right? I'm not calling somebody else out, all right? This is a, he, he pulled out this Reader's Digest page, and he says, this is a tragedy. He said, the title of the article is, start now, retire early. And so he read this, Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect seashells. He said, that's a tragedy. He continued, there are people in this country that are spending billions of dollars to get you to buy it. And I get 40 minutes to plea with you, don't buy it. He said, with all my heart, I plea with you, don't buy that dream. As the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account with what you did, here it is, Lord, my shell collection. And I've got a good swing. And look at my boat. Don't waste your life, he said. And the way to not waste your life is to give God glory for every gift. Before, because everyone from a new car to physical safety to your own next heartbeat is grace bought and paid for through the cross. What Piper said that day struck a generation of college students, and why? Because what he had said was different than everything they had been told about a life well lived by culture and by their peers. 
and by their schools and likely by their churches. All the constant calls of live for yourself were clashing with what Piper said there. Jim Elliott, have you heard of Jim Elliott, would agree with Piper. Though Elliott died many years ago, killed by the very people that he went to take the gospel to. In his journal, years before, Elliot wrote this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He had an eternal perspective. He had stored up treasure in heaven and died so that others could do the same. A fool, says Elliot, is someone who stores up treasure on earth. Though those who do live for this world only would see Elliot as the fool. Who's the fool really? In our text this morning, Jesus is telling us how to live a life well lived. But it's not what most people think. Jesus' answer to not wasting the dash between the dates is not one that you will hear anywhere else but from him because it is so different than anything the world has to offer. But it is in this call from Jesus that he invites us to make a choice He is letting us know that in him is life, but not in the way we've been told all of our lives from a world set on itself. Rather, Jesus is telling us that the life that is found in him is also found in death, death of self. Therefore, says Jesus, count the cost. He's shown us, yes, in recent texts, that the invitation to follow him And come eat at the banquet is an invitation that's open to all, yes? The invitation is open to everybody. But now he says, if you accept this invitation, this is what it entails. And thus, he asks, are you willing? Jesus doesn't hide the cost of followership, does he? He is no snake oil salesman. He is no seller of spiritual goods and services. He's not trying to build a brand or a big crowd or to pump up his numbers. He's not interested and pulling a bait and switch on people. He's not someone desperate for people to see how big he could get the crowd to be. Jesus is telling people up front, I do want you to follow me. I want you to give, I want to give you life and a life in abundance, but you must know before you follow what it actually involves. This is what this text does, okay? So let's dive in here. There's a lot to cover. So you look at your text, you see the the meal with the Pharisees that comprise verses 1 through 24 is over, and Jesus continues his trek towards Jerusalem that he's been set on since chapter 9. So the, the cross is looming over this text as well. The crowds follow him once more, and so he, he goes against all church growth books and seminars by turning to the multitude of people to tell them how hard it is to be a true disciple of his. In fact, in, in this short text, he says three times, if you look, at, look down at it, if you can't do this, you can't be my disciple. Three times he says that. Now let's say from the start, this is not some kind of works righteousness where Jesus says that if you do A, B, and C, you'll get saved. All right, we've already seen that Jesus is a banquet host who merely sends out invitations and calls the weak and the needy and the helpless and the hopeless to come and accept the invitation. All you need is need to come to Jesus. All that is needed to be in the kingdom is knowing your need, acknowledging helplessness, and bending your knee to Jesus. But Jesus wants us to know what sort of life we would be embarking on if we're to accept his gracious invitation of forgiveness and wholeness. He's telling us that this acceptance of his invitation is the most important 
decision we will ever make. Because it is a commitment to a new life which invariably involves a new way of living. We aren't joining a a civic or social club. We're not joining some organization or fandom or some other society that requires little in exchange for perks. This, This is rather a transformation that affects the whole person, changing them from the inside out. What all of Jesus' descriptions of a disciple here come down to is this. Where does your allegiance lie? That's what all this boils down to. The question Jesus is asking is, who has your ultimate allegiance above all other claimants? Because Jesus is saying, I can't be a mere add-on to your life. I can't be something you throw in when you've got the time. I cannot be addition to whatever you got going on. I cannot be your pocket charm or your genie in the bottle, your cheerleader or your mascot. I cannot be your mere moral teacher or someone you seek advice from when you're in a bind. I must be not simply your savior, but your Lord and your master and your king and your captain and your center and your driving force and your first and chief priority. He says all other allegiances must pale in comparison to your allegiance to me. If we say, I cannot make you thus, then he says, then you can't be my disciple. And we say, that's tough. I don't like it, right? (laughs) But it's Jesus who gets to define what a disciple looks like, yes? We do not. In our spiritually squishy age of religious placebos and feel-goodery, a message like this will hardly sell. When was the last time you heard a self-help book in the Christian section of the bookstore tell you to die to yourself? When was the last time you hear a TV preacher with his slick back hair tell an audience to pick up the cross? You know, in his seminal book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, Neil Postman, he wrote this in the 80s. He was talking about TV preachers. And he said, you shall wait a very long time indeed if you wish to hear an electronic preacher refer to the difficulties of a rich man will have gaining access to heaven. He says, religious programs are filled with good cheer. They celebrate affluence. Their featured players become celebrities. Though their message is trivial, the shows have high ratings. Or rather, because their messages are trivial, the show has high ratings. Then he says, perhaps the best line in all the book, I believe I am not mistaken in saying that Christianity is a demanding and serious religion. When it is delivered as easy and amusing, it is another religion altogether. It's true, is it not? But Jesus isn't simply in the mood to tickle ears and build a crowd. Jesus wants to offer people life. But life is found in dying, don't you see? Dying to self, dying to earthly allegiances, dying to worldly success and materialism, dying to sin, dying to everything that you have been told fills a life well lived. You want to be Jesus' disciples? What do you say? Hate your dad and your mom and your wife and kids and brothers and sisters. Matter of fact, hate your own life as well. Now, does Jesus mean hate in the way that we typically think of it? I mean, Doesn't he elsewhere tell us to love our family and love our neighbors and even love our enemy? Does does he mean for us to hate them instead? Of of course, he does not mean hate in the way of animosity, right? That's the way we think of it, or malice or disdain. In Jesus' context, hate 
didn't have that kind of one-dimensional definition like we think of it in our culture. Jesus means hate comparatively, okay? Comparatively, it's rhetorical. It's an arresting, attention-grabbing way to say you must love your family and yourself far less than you love Jesus. He isn't saying for you to feel nothing for your family or to be insensitive or abandon them. He is saying that love you have for him must outpace the love you have even for those closest to you in the world. Darrell Box says, following Jesus to be the disciples' first love. This pursuit is to have priority over any family member and one's own life, which means other concerns are to take second place to following Jesus. James Edwards says the point of verse 26 is that good things, even things created and commanded by God, such as father and mother and honor due to them, cannot be given precedence over Jesus. Jesus is to be your supreme love. You are to be a, if you are to be a disciple of him, this doesn't mean that you don't love your family, but it does mean your love for them is a distant second to love for Christ. You know, the stars are out right now, don't you? Like beyond the atmosphere and beyond the blue sky, the stars are still there. Right? It isn't as, as if the stars retreat or flee when it's daytime on earth, right? You just can't see them because the sun is so bright. The sun overpowers the brightness of the stars from the ground on earth. There are stars, yes, but the brilliance of the sun outpaces them. Jesus is saying that your love for him should be like the way the sun outshines the stars. It doesn't, it doesn't put out their loves, right? It doesn't put out your love for your family, but it outshines them. It floods them with an overwhelming love. Your love for him is provided by his love for you. And that love is brighter than your love for family and friends. Your, your love for them is still there. But by comparison, your love for Jesus is greater still. Jesus is saying not to love your mom and dad or husband or wife or kids and siblings or friends, right? And our problem, our problem was never that we love people too much. The problem is we love Jesus too little. And so our love for earthly bonds outpaces our love for Jesus. St. Augustine said our problem is not that we love things and people, it's that our loves are disordered. They're out of order. Our loves are all out of whack. And so we love our spouse and parents and children more than we love God. It's the same thing if you love money and possessions or work more than you love your spouse or your children, you will inevitably end up with broken relationships Right? As you use people or disregard them as objects in the way of what you truly want. Your loves are disordered. And, you know, the thing about loving your spouse and your kids more than you love Jesus is that you're not actually loving them the way you should. Isn't that the irony? Like, you don't love your spouse and kids best when you love them first. I think about this, okay? This passage is about discipleship, right? That's what the silly little heading in your Bible says, right? But even more than that, it's about Jesus' identity, isn't it? Because what is he claiming when he is telling anyone who would be a Christian that they have to love him more than anything else? What is he claiming when he's claiming supreme love and allegiance and adoration in a way that everything else pales in comparison? This is nothing less than a claim to deity, it is a God claim. This is essentially another way to say the first commandment of having no other gods before him. 
No one but deity can make this sort of claim, right? But Jesus does. So now, what are you doing when you love your spouse or kids or parents or any other person more than Jesus? What do you do when you place the weight of your hopes and dreams and happiness on the people in your life? What are you doing when your joy rises and falls according to your spouse or kids or parents or anyone else? What you're doing is you're placing weight on their shoulders that they're not created to bear. You wouldn't put it like this, but I will. When you love your spouse and kids supremely, you are making an idol out of people. And you're doing a disservice to them because human shoulders were not created to bear the weight of deity. It's not fair to them to have to carry such a weight because they were created for you to love, but not supremely. They were created for you to love, but not in the main source of your joy and fulfillment. So you can't love people all right unless you don't love them more than you love Jesus. And you know, another irony of all this, isn't this ironic? Our society both de-emphasizes family, yes, by bastardizing what family is, and we've never had families as an idol like we do now. The reason Jesus repeatedly hits us, have you noticed, at the family and the money and the property and the job level is because they all quickly become idols. They quickly become the center of our lives, and they're also the most frequent reasons we give as to why we don't follow him or why we disobey him or delay giving ourselves more to service and discipleship. Am I wrong? How many skip even the most basic level of obedience like Bible reading, prayer, and regular worship attendance and use excuses of their job and their busyness and their kids' sports and their hobbies or some other related excuse as to why they're marginal Christians? The most frequent excuses pastors hear for why someone never attends church or becomes an infrequent attender are two, job and family obligations, usually having to do with kids' activities. In other words, disordered loves, as Augustine would say. I read this quote last week, but it bears repeating. This is from Klein Snodgrass. He said, we cannot have the kingdom on our own terms. The invitation of grace brings with it demand. At stake is the issue of a person's identity. It is not enough to wear the right label. Rather, the kingdom must shape identity so that one has a whole different set of concerns. The warning of Luke must be heard. The biggest obstacles to discipleship are possessions and family, but they are also the biggest opportunities for discipleship. See, there's a difference, right? Are you using the things in your life like family, possessions, and career, and retirement as a way to bring you happiness and fulfillment, and you have thus turned them into excuses for why you can't love Jesus the way you know you ought, or are you ordering your loves properly to be able to love people rightly? and leverage them all for the kingdom because you love Jesus supremely? Is your family or career a means by which you disciple or an excuse for why you aren't a devoted one? Jesus says that if your love for your family comes into conflict with your love for him, that you are to love who? Him. Jesus says that if your devotion for your family comes into conflict with your devotion to him, you are to choose him. Do you remember when Christian in Pilgrim's Progress found out from evangelists about his sins and need for redemption in the book? And so he set out on this pilgrimage 
uh, and how his family responded. They tried to stop him, but he ran and he put his fingers in his ears and he said, life, life, eternal life. Christian's friends and family thought he was a lunatic because he embarked on a life of Christo centrality. And loving Jesus in the way that he is calling for here will inevitably, do you hear me? Inevitably rub against your family and your friends too. Look, no one minds marginal cultural Christians who love Jesus in word alone. No one minds them. No one minds people who don't put Jesus first. Not even the devil minds people who claim they're Christian as long as they continue to love other things more than they do Jesus. Jesus as co-pilot or self-help companion or mascot or cliche maker for social media likes isn't a threat to anyone. That's an amen right there, especially not the kingdom of darkness. It's not a threat to anyone, especially not the kingdom of darkness. Why? Because that's not Jesus at all. Being a disciple of Jesus is costly. And if it isn't costing us anything, then what does that say about our devotion? Are we loving him the way he calls for here? This is a radical thing that Jesus is saying here. But where else would you go for life, life, eternal life? Jesus says that he is not to be an additive or an addition, a secondary item or a means to an end. He is to be the end and your life is to be the means. So many of our lives, yes, and I, I gotta admit it too, so many of our lives are prioritized, scheduled, and motivated by our love for kids, spouse, wealth, comfort, or some other thing. Why do we do what we do? It's derived from some other meaning, some other goal, some other center. Jesus says, I'm not going to be added to what you have going on. If you're gonna follow me, I'm going to be the goal, the priority, the motivating center of your life. And everything else can be loved aright if they are loved after you love me. That's what he says. Can it be any other way? But Jesus' confronting words go further still, don't they? You must not only love Jesus more than your family, you must love him more than your life to the point that you must be willing to bear a cross for the sake of the gospel. Would we forsake comfort, possessions, and ease for the kingdom? For some, this is a bigger ask than loving Jesus more than family. In some ways, our self-love rivals the love we say we give to our family and friends. Jesus says we must die in order to live. Would you live? Then you must die. We say, I want to live. And so what do we do? We pursue with all of our might things that we think will provide us life and meaning and purpose and value. But life is not found in selfishness. Life is not found in the pursuit of pleasure and comfort with, and ease with all of our might. Life is not found in any place that isn't Jesus. And Jesus' place is a place of crucifixion. Jesus says, you must bear your own cross and come after me or else you can't be my disciple. Now we're far removed from crucifixion, right? So what does Jesus mean here? When someone would see a person take up their cross, they knew that person was heading to the place of the crucifixion. It's a one-way ticket. Their life, in other words, were no longer theirs. 
There was no going back. There was no retaining one's freedoms or rights. There was no holding on to any semblance of a future. To take up a cross meant certain death. It was a symbol of absoluteness and totality. And in fact, there, there are no known survivors of Roman crucifixions. What is Jesus saying here about those who would follow him? It means that if you're going to follow Jesus, you must relinquish all claims on your life. It means you're no longer your own sovereign. It means you are no longer the one who determines your own life. It means crucifying self itself and coming under the banner of Jesus. It means you are ready to share Jesus' fate of rejection by the world or maybe even by your family and friends who think you're going a little too far with this Jesus thing. This posture of life that Jesus is calling for, in fact, both the words bear, if you look at the word bear and the word come in verse 27, they're in the present tense. That means there are constant activities for the Christian. We bear the cross, we go after Jesus, and you wake up tomorrow, and you know what you do? You have a new opportunity to bear your cross, to crucify yourself, and then again the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and every day if the Lord tarries. Every place we look for satisfaction and fullness that isn't him, Jesus is calling us to die to it. Everything that would steal our affection and attention and devotion and obedience, Jesus tells us, die to it. Jesus is asking, do you think I'm worth it? You know, St. Columbia was a 6th century monk, and he left his native Ireland with 12 men to bring the gospel to uh, pagan people in Scotland. Uh, missionaries uh, were, were uh, the missionaries founded an abbey in this town, which would become a vibrant center of literacy and faith for centuries to come. But shortly after they reached Scotland, they, they were in this animal hide wrapped wicker boat. Columba did something drastic. I bet you know where I'm going with this. He knew he and his commandians might be tempted to leave when life got uncomfortable or dangerous, and so the story goes, he burned the boats. This is what Amy Joseph says on this. She said, Columba and his crew had to burn the vessels that might have tempted them to escape back to the familiarity of kin and country. Likewise, each new disciple of Christ has a boat that might lead back to a life more lucrative, more culturally celebrated, or simply more comfortable. For some, a former relationship that trumped Christ is the boat that beckons backwards. For others, the approval of unbelieving family continually whispers, don't be a religious fanatic, loosen your grip on Christ just a bit. Often, in our money-minded culture, the boats that demand burning would drift us back to a more padded retirement fund or some financial frivolity. Whatever the shape or style, any boat that leads us away from following Christ must be burned as often as they're built. While this sounds overwhelming and almost impossible, she says, remember that the one who asks for commitment to himself, his word, and his ways also fully committed himself to us. When we have Christ, we have not missed out on anything. We gain everything. I understand that what Jesus is saying here isn't for like a certain class of Christians, right? As, as if there were regular disciples and like super committed disciples. There aren't two different categories of disciples. There's just the one. And that category is cross-bearing, self-denying, lovers of Jesus over everything else. 
As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the cross is laid on every Christian. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Or David Garland says, following Jesus to Golgotha is not some tedious detour, it's the main road. But Jesus' comfort here is for those who would follow him to embark on a lifelong journey. Perfect obedience, hear me, perfect obedience isn't the call here. A life of of never failing isn't the call here. A love of Jesus that never falters isn't the call. A faith in Jesus that is never weak or doubting isn't the call. Taking up a cross as a way of life is a daily, lifelong journey of self-denial. You didn't get this overnight. It's a striving to obey. No, no one with a crossbeam walking towards the place of their crucifixion does so with a swaggering confidence that doesn't stumble or shake. We take up a cross as ones who have a singular focus and allegiance. We love Jesus supremely by his loving us first and empowering and ordering our loves. All of it by Christ, through Christ, and for Christ. Jesus is warning us here, isn't he? He's asking, would you count the cost? Again, he's no bait and switcher. He's not promising a life of ease only for us to find out that we have to die and love him more than family. There's no fine print when it comes to Jesus. Jesus didn't like, you ever buy tickets online to something and the price says one thing and then you put it in the cart and then it like doubles? Right, because there's all these hidden fees and taxes and all this stuff. Jesus hides nothing about what it means to follow him. And we shouldn't lie to people about what it means to follow him either. So he warns would-be disciples and says, count the cost. Count the cost. He says, he does this with two easy-to-understand parables, and both come with rhetorical questions that he expects negative answers to. Let's look at these quickly. Yes, who would start construction on a tower that they can't complete, right? He's wondering if you would start to build a tower before you sat down and calculated if you would even have enough money and materials to finish. He says that if you built and couldn't finish, people would make fun of you, right? (laughs) Whatever you built would be like a monument to your short-sightedness. Who would do that? Wouldn't you count the cost first? The answer is yes. So says Jesus, count the cost before you follow me. Or what about a king? He had an army and it was half the size of his enemies. Would he rush into battle without first sitting down and calculating whether or not he could win? Only a foolish king would do that. If he didn't calculate the cost, he rushed into battle, it would be a massacre. He says, who would do that? No one. So don't follow me without first calculating what it will cost. Now, here's the twin truth about what Jesus has been saying in the last few stories and chapters. There is an urgency in responding to him. Yes? And you should not rush in before you count the cost of being his disciple. Can you love Jesus more than you love your family and friends and even your own life? If the answer is no, how can you follow Jesus? Can you take up a cross and live for Jesus and die to self and to sin and the world and your self-determination with Jesus' help? If your answer is no, then how can you follow Jesus? If you are pursuing these things, how can you be a follower of Jesus? Does Jesus have your allegiance above other claimants to where his will is your supreme goal? If the answer is no, how can you be a disciple of his? Discipleship, says Snodgrass, is no light matter and the urgency of the call does not diminish the seriousness of the commitment. With these parables, Jesus does not seek to deter discipleship, but his goal is not merely to gain as large a following as possible. 
And look, I get that churches and ministries want big crowds and a bunch of responses, and I think most have good motivations, really do. But I do wonder if doing so while hiding what it really means to follow Jesus according to Jesus and rushing people into these decisions could very well be giving people false assurance of a salvation that they do not have. Giving people sugary sweets and telling them, you know, it really doesn't cost anything to follow Jesus and you don't really have to pursue obedience and, you know, Jesus doesn't mind being on the fringes and margins of your life, right? And you just do whatever makes you happy. That might get people to make a decision or agree to be baptized, but it might very well be damning them. How can we not tell people to count the cost when Jesus himself says, Count the cost. You know, when I went into the military, I, I went in at the beginning of the Iraq war and my recruiter didn't say, you know what? There isn't actually a war going on. Uh, you never have to go there anyway. You know, you don't have to risk or fight. Uh, your life will never be in danger. <laughs> you also get paid really well and training isn't very hard. And all you have coming to you is like benefits, right? And perks and you don't have to swear swear in or obey anyone or anything like that. We wouldn't want to kill your good vibes. That'd been a bunch of lies that I'd found out pretty quick, right? It'd be a bait and switch. Instead, he told me what it might cost, which was even my life. Would we tell people that following Jesus isn't costly? When Jesus tells us over and over again that salvation is free, but it isn't cheap. Who knew yelling for this long to do something to your throat? When we tell people that following Jesus isn't costly, when Jesus tells us over and over again that salvation is free but isn't cheap, would I be anything but a charlatan if I stood before you and tried to soften Jesus' words in order to make you like me or keep me gainfully employed or to keep you coming? I know this. Even though this all seems very heavy, the yoke is easy and the burden is light. Even though this all seems tough, it's the only place to get life and joy and fullness and meaning and eternal satisfaction. Those set on the ways of the world and the definitions of a life well lived as defined by fallen people in society set against God. Look at this text. They see death, not life. Mortal flesh reads these words and rejects them. But those who have a holy discontentment with this world knowing a picturesque family and a large bank account and a sweet retirement and an awesome car will give you will not give you transient happiness but will leave you wanting more they will see Jesus words here as words of life they will count the cost they will say to Jesus whatever the price is you're worth it because not only does a person discontented with the world as it is see Jesus is more beautiful than anything this side of the sun but they know what they need isn't mere improvement or more morality or just to be a better version of themselves. They know they need new life with a new identity and that new identity will come with new priorities that will look strange to the world and the former life of sin and fallenness. Now, Jesus wraps up this particular lesson by comparing the disciple to salt. He says that salt is good, but if salt loses taste, it's useless because you, re- you can't re-salt saltless salt, right? Salt, you understand, you probably know this, was used in a variety of ways in the ancient world. It had 11 different uses, in fact, including seasoning, fertilizer, or to preserve meat. It, it was valuable and helpful in many ways, but 
if it was used, for example, in like an oven by, to be a catalyst for burning fuel, over time, the saltiness would go away and they would have to take it out and throw it away. Uh, it'd be useless. So what does this have to do with discipleship? Well, pursuit of discipleship in the way that Jesus has been describing will make one like salt. It will make you a, pers- a purifying and preserving agent. It will make you distinct and useful for the kingdom. Edward says once more, the believer for whom Jesus is more important than family and friends, even their own lives, who take up their crosses as living martyrs, forsake the claims of possessions, are savory salt who bring joy to God and make a palpable difference in the world. Christians who are not salty are not Christians at all, more useless than those who never claim to follow Jesus in the first place. Consider again the idea of salt losing its taste. How does that even happen? Well, what's interesting, if you look again at this word, that's translated lose its taste or lose its saltiness. This also means to become foolish. So to be someone who claims to be a disciple but never counted the cost, won't love Jesus more than family or friends or one's life, won't take up a cross, won't renounce attachment to the possessions. This isn't just a flavorless person. This is a fool. It is foolish to try to find life anywhere but in Jesus. Yes? And it is foolish to claim to be attached to him when one won't pursue love of him supremely and won't die to the world more and more and die to sin and flesh. You know, see, salt, you understand, it can't lose its saltiness unless it's diluted. Unless you add something to it, some kind of impurity. So how does the disciple lose their saltiness? How do they become foolish? By compromising, by being like the world, by a church losing its distinctiveness, by not loving Jesus more than others, by not giving Jesus allegiance, by embracing rather than killing sin, by rejecting a cross, by not pursuing obedience, by claiming to be a disciple, but living like you don't know Jesus at all. You you well know I grew up in Colorado. And that Silent and I lived in Alaska for three years. And these are places, of course, that have snow, right? When there was a good snowfall in these places, they'd have trucks that, you know, I was thinking about this. If there was like two inches of snow that just kind of fell on Georgia, I mean, I, I just shut everything down, right? Like before it came, there'd be no toilet paper, water, and the, right, all the shed already would be gone. It would just be chaos because we're not equipped to have these trucks. But in Colorado, Alaska, it snows all the time. So you got these trucks and they dump the salt on the, on the road, right? Um, that way the, the road, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, so the road won't get too icy. Now, let me ask this. Would they only have to put salt out once a winter and the salt would work all year? Well, no. Uh, And why? Because the salt would lose its potency once it became wet from another snowfall or from melted ice. It become diluted and it would thus lose its power and purity. You guys see where I'm going with this? Another way that salt can lose its potency is the way some cities add dirt to their salt in order to try to increase their supply. Uh, the, le- the salt is less powerful from the beginning because it's quickly defiled and corrupted, you see? Now, how can we lose our saltiness? How do we become foolish? By seeing Christ's call here and rejecting him. By not taking up a cross and following him. By not clinging to him with everything we've got. By giving our allegiance to other things first and foremost. By not putting him at the center. Now, here's something else I bet you didn't know about salt. Salt that was no good Loss of saltiness? It wasn't just useless. Did, did you know that he threw salt on soil, it would act as a herbicide and it could destroy the ability of soil to produce. Corrupted salt's not just useless, it's harmful. 
Charles Coral said ruined salt was worth less than dirt or manure because even they were useful as fertilizers that promoted growth of plants. But salt did not promote life, it destroyed life. The ancients used corrupted salt as gravel and beaten past where grass could not grow anyway because of heavy traffic. The point is that salt that is too corrupt to have a purifying influence can have a destructive influence. Salt has lost its purity has a herbicidal effect. Rather than purifying the lives of others, it destroys the potential for life. So saltless Christianity, saltless discipleship, it's not only useless, but it can be dangerous and harmful to the witness of the kingdom and to our very own souls. You know, you hear me rant about this all the time. Those who claim to be Christian, but live marginally Christian lives and don't follow Jesus like he calls, aren't just useless for the kingdom. They're doing active harm to the witness of the kingdom of Christ because they're telling the world that one can claim to love Jesus and live like hell. If that's the case, why would a believer, an unbeliever, become a Christian if you're just living just like them? What are they missing? Saltless Christianity preserves and purifies nothing at all. You know, if you live the way that Jesus is talking about here, people, even maybe some professing Christians, will think you're nuts. That's only because they're flavorless salt. A true disciple of Jesus will purify the community around him. Churches that are salty in a good way will preserve the true gospel, calling those who don't know Jesus to truly come and embrace his narrow way. Friend, do you have an ear to hear what Jesus is saying here? Do you see what he's saying? Do you, you know what I wanted to do last week at Jesus' call for radical hospitality? I said to have the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind over at your house who couldn't pay you back. You know what I want to do? I want to find ways to wiggle out of it. I want to wiggle out of such an uncomfortable demand. I want to comfort my disobedience with, he didn't really mean that. Or you have to understand that. Or other excuses. And do you know what we want to do with this text? We want to say, ah, Jesus didn't really mean that we need to love him more than our family. Jesus didn't mean we had to take up a cross. That's a metaphor, right, for some other hardship. Uh, uh, Jesus didn't mean to renounce my boat and palatial mansion and six cars and devotion to my job. Uh, Jesus didn't mean not to use up my life for him. Uh, Jesus didn't really mean for me to give up my idolatry of my stuff or my spouse or my parents or my kids. Jesus didn't really mean I need to die daily in order to live. Surely he didn't mean all of this. But you know what? He meant what we looked at last week, and he meant what he says in this text too. So I'm wiggling out of it, I'm afraid. <laughs> to wiggle out is to be flavorless salt. To wiggle out is to reject being a disciple. Do we have ears to hear? My friend, are you pursuing him on the narrow way? But look again who's calling you to pursue real discipleship. Here is the creator God who condescended to enter our mess so that we can live. Here's the one, do you realize this? The one who said, let there be light is the one who now says, you cannot be my disciple unless you take up a cross because he is the one who took up a cross himself so that you could be redeemed and forgiven and new. 
He shed his blood and felt forsaken of God so that you never would. He absorbed the wrath of God so you wouldn't. And he isn't calling you to simply obey like some far-flung detached ruler. He's calling you to love him because he loved you first. It's called discipleship. It's not some burdensome duty. It is a delight because of who it is that's making these demands. He's calling for nothing, nothing less than coming and loving him for him as not a means to some other end, but to live a life where he is the end and our life is the means for his glory and his fame and not our own. Do you know him? Are you following him like this? Are you salt? Do you see his beauty? Go to him, he is altogether worth it. What are you doing with the dash between the dates? Now don't waste your life on that which doesn't last. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose.